You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Loved ones, if you have your Bible, copy of God's Word, why don't you turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 2, and I'll reintroduce myself. My name is Craig Turnbull. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, I get to serve on staff as one of the pastors here and uh, get to be uh, the person this morning delivering to you God's Word and privileged to do that. Uh, Acts chapter 2 is our text. We're going to look at the back end of Acts chapter 2, specifically verses 36 to 41, but there's a whole lot that comes before that, so let me set the context for us in just a few minutes. Uh, Let's wind back the clock some 2,000 years, and let's travel from this room to ancient Israel, specifically to the capital city, uh, ancient Jerusalem. And and in the middle of Jerusalem, at the time of the text here, uh, there's a festival going on. It's, it's 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 a harvest festival. It's it's called the Festival of Weeks, and it would occur uh, uh, seven weeks, 49 days after a high holy day in the Jewish calendar, uh, the, 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 the Passover event when the Jews would celebrate the Lord's Passover in Egypt, and they would sacrifice a Passover lamb. Now, what makes this particular festival so specific in time is that this is the Festival of Weeks that occurs immediately after Jesus was crucified. The one true Passover lamb has come. He has offered his life freely as a sacrifice. And now 49 days, some some 50 days later, that's why the Greeks called it Pentecost, means 50 days later, uh, they celebrate this. And the closest equivalent we have to this kind of celebration today is the holiday of Thanksgiving. It's at the end of the year. We bring in the crops or we used to, we celebrate, we celebrate the, 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 the food and the bounty that the Lord has provided, and we take a moment to, to, to delight in the Lord's harvest. Now what's interesting in our passage this morning is we're going to see that this is a harvest festival for sure, but it's a harvest festival unlike anything else that Israel has ever seen. Here's what happens. In chapter 1, verse 15, back a second, we read that there's 120 followers of Jesus Christ. 120, and they're huddled upstairs in a room, huddled together, but then chapter 2 hits. 2, verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he comes upon them, and as he fills them, they begin to speak in languages that are known elsewhere in the world. And so, so, so the crowd is puzzled by this because they can see the people that are speaking, and the people that are speaking all of these known languages, it's confusing to them, it doesn't compute, because wait a second, wait a second, they say in verse 7, aren't these guys Galileans? Translation, aren't they fishermen? They're poor uneducated lot. They don't know other languages. This is the language they know. That's a fish. That's a hook. That's a net. Let's get another fish. Simple, common people. How can they speak in these languages? Well, they come up with a solution. Verse 13, they say, well, they're drunk. Uh, Peter counters that immediately. Next verse, he says, no, 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 we're not drunk. And he begins to quote Joel 2, which says in the last days that the Spirit of God will be poured out, verse 17, on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, 
And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. What he's saying here is, is, is it's, not, it's not alcohol, guys. What you're seeing, why we're able to speak in these languages, why we're able to prophesy in these languages, is because, because, because the Spirit has come. Remember Joel, he wrote that hundreds of years ago? This is a fulfillment of that prophecy. That's why we're speaking this way. That's why you're seeing the things you're seeing. This is why the miracle is happening. What he's saying is essentially, wake up and smell the Holy Spirit. He's here. This is the fact. But why has the Spirit come? Well, Peter goes on, he says, well, the Messiah, the anointed one, the captain of the team, the coming champion, the king, the prophesied one has come. Look at verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, you saw it. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. By what? By death. And then he quotes Psalm 16 and says, this is why the Holy One would not see corruption. The Holy One would not die. Jesus has been risen from the grave. He says, Messiah has come. You killed him, but he's been raised. Messiah has come. You rejected him. And you didn't just reject him. You, you handed him over to be murdered. But he's been raised. Now, how amazing is this? Have you thought about this? This Passover is 50 days after Jesus was raised. And the Bible tells us that he stays around Jerusalem after Jesus, has, Jesus does, after he's been raised. He stays around for 40 days. The 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that he appears to over 500 people. So doing the math, this is just 10 days later. Have you ever thought about how amazing this passage is? In fact, this is, I think, one of the greatest testimonies to the truth that Jesus has been raised. Because if Peter's standing up 50 days after Jesus has been crucified, and the whole world saw him die, and he's still dead, you know what they're shouting? Here's the body. He's still dead. But they can't do that. Why can't they do that? Because some of them saw him raised. They know that there's no body. The body's been taken, and Jesus Christ is alive. Listen, listen, you can, you can refuse to believe that truth, but you cannot refute the truth. The evidence is there. In fact, more people saw Jesus be born than ever saw you be born. More people witnessed Jesus' death than will probably witness your death. And more people saw Jesus' resurrection. Well, 500 people saw Jesus' resurrection. It's the truth. You can... Refuse to believe it, but you can't refute it. It's undeniable, and gloriously so. It's so true that Jesus Christ is alive, and the crowd knows it, and they're looking at him, and Peter says, Messiah has come. He's performed wonders, and, and though he is alive now, you did kill him. And now our text, verse 36, he says, for the prom, uh, verse 36, now when they, uh, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus was the answer. You saw him. You missed him. You rejected him. And you killed him. Verse 37. 
Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, that cut is not a paper cut. Ow. The cut, the word for cut is stabbed. It's a javelin throw into the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, how do you think they said that? Here's Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel. He came. He delivered. He he worked with signs and wonders and miracles. He was the only answer for you. He's the only answer for all of life and all of hope. And, and, And he came presenting the answer, and yet you rejected him. And not only did you reject him, not only did you hand him over to the lawless men, you 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 are culpable in his murder. You are murderers. And what do they say in response? It's not, oh brothers, what should we do? It's brothers. What do we do? Oh, no, 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 no. What have we done? What have we done? What have we done? The Spirit begins to convict. And and the Spirit shatters their self-righteousness. Conviction abounds. Their self-righteousness and splinters. What have we done? What have we done? What have we done? What have we done? Now, listen, I believe that the Lord... I believe the Lord has been moving in this community powerfully in recent days and months. And we thank the Lord for his great work. I, you know, I've been hearing stories and even seeing the Lord begin to move and, and moving in my own life. I believe the Lord is convicting people of their sin. He's convincing them of what's a reality in their life and he's breaking those barriers of sin. He's convincing person after person that this life with all of its joys or with all of its toys and all of its trinkets and all of its temporalities is just that, temporal. And he's convincing us that the the idols of our hearts, these games, these toys, these amusements, they're just that, they're idols. In fact, they're not only just idols, they're standing in the way of blocking, and they're blocking us from actually receiving the greatest joy, the greatest delight, the greatest peace, the greatest self-satisfaction that we could find. These things are blocking us, standing in the way of God, and we call them sin. But listen, I I believe strongly that God is refining this community. And I stand here before you this morning, and and I confess that God has done a work in my life just in the past couple weeks, at free indeed, in fact. And God begins to expose the sin in my life that I've been blinded, I've been blinded myself to, and I, I, I come up, and I see, look at the hurt. Look at the hurt you have done. Look at the pain you've inflicted in your own life, Craig. Look at how you have hurt those around you. Look at how you've hurt the people that are closest to you, the people that you love. And frankly, I'm ashamed. What should I do? And maybe if you were standing here in this place, you'd be saying something similar. You know what? what, what not free indeed. It was the past couple messages. A couple messages. God's convicting my heart. And there's been an exposure of things that are wrong in my life, and I'm seeing that they're wrong. What should I do? Listen, listen. If you've got that javelin in your heart, that javelin sticking out of your chest this morning, that's a good thing, okay? That conviction is a good thing because conviction is a God thing. Because conviction, when it comes from Jesus Christ, is never just conviction. Conviction alone is just condemnation. But when conviction comes from Jesus Christ, there's always with it equal measures of grace and mercy and help in time of need. The Lord Jesus Christ with arms open says, come. Conviction, yes, but come and be healed. Well, Peter gives them an answer to their question. What should we do? Brothers, what should we do? 
The first comes in verse 36. He gives them two things. Look at verse 36 again. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, underline, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Here, here's the first thing. What do you do? You run to the truth. Run to the truth. Now, now Peter says, no, 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 he says. Yeah, get the truth in your life. Get your facts straight. Why do you need to get your facts straight? Because you get your facts really, really, really wrong. You thought that Jesus was a criminal. He was the king of heaven. You thought Jesus was just a man, when in reality, he's the eternal God. You thought Jesus was a nuisance, when in reality, he's the king of kings. You thought Jesus was a liar and a blasphemer, when in reality, he's the anchor of all truth. You thought Jesus was weak, when he's omnipotent. You thought Jesus was to be ignored as irrelevant, when in fact, he's supposed to be embraced as central. You thought Jesus was dead, but he's never been more alive. They got the facts wrong. They did not see Jesus as Messiah, as Lord. And you and I get it wrong too. With my sin, I fail to see the Jesus as Lord also. You, me, everybody. They were responsible. They had rejected Jesus. They had run from God. And you know what? You and I are responsible for his death also. A rejection of Jesus which leads to death, but the death of Jesus Christ is the awesome unworking of the power of sin, a death he freely walked into. Maybe you've been feeling that conviction. Maybe it's been today, maybe it's been over the past couple months, you've been feeling that javelin, that sure knowledge that you are wrong, that you've rejected God, that you've hurt others around you, others that you love so very much, and you've even hurt yourself. Listen, here's the truth for you this morning, is that Jesus Christ died for those sins too. Jesus died for those sins. What stain is it that you have on your hands? What is it that you can't get out? What is it that in your hidden life that you, you think that no one sees? What is it in your thoughts that continue? What's it in your behaviors? What's it in your family? What's it in your marriage? What's it in your relationship? What is it in your past? Are these stains on your hands? Listen, you need to hear this morning that Jesus died for those sins again. You run to that truth. You cut to the heart? Well, they're cut to the heart too. That's what Peter says this in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. There it is, run to the truth. What should we do? Run to the truth, run to the truth. We should know this truth, we should repent. We should know and repent. That word for repent means to turn away from sin. It literally means to stop doing it. It, it. From the Greek, it means to change your mind about something. Oh, that was good. I'm going to pursue this lifestyle. That will give me satisfaction. That will give me delight. That will find my true love. I need a rest. I need some rest. I need some peace. I need some hope. I need this. I'm going to try this out for size. Repentance is, no, that's wrong. I'm running away from that now. I'm changing my mind. What I thought gave me peace is nothing but peace. What I thought gave me delight is nothing but delight. What I thought is pleasure is not pleasurable. I'm changing my mind about that. You know, this, this past week at work, we, we had uh, at work. It's also church. Um, you're here. Um, this, this week at church, we had the dumpster come in. And I'm a guy who loves dumpsters, okay? Love dumpsters. Okay, I had a, friend, a neighbor of mine, he knocked on my door uh, a few months back, and he's like, hey, uh, there's a dumpster in my driveway. If you got anything, go ahead and fill it up, because I got room. 
Well, that, as soon as he says, there's a dumpster in my driveway, music starts playing in my head. Ta-da-da. It's like, yes. And I'm, everything's slow motion. Dumpster. Go to the garage. There's always something to throw in the dumpster. You know, throw the pack and play in. Throw the dumpster. Throw that in there. Throw in the old basketball jersey that doesn't fit anymore. Throw it in. Get rid of it. Yay. Cheering. You like me? Like Just me? I love it. You know, you know what else happens when the, with a dumpster? You know what you never do? You throw it in there. You know what you never do? Have a cup of tea two hours later, looking at the snowfall, thinking, I wonder how that jersey's doing. <laughs> two years later, boy, I really miss that jersey. Uh, I wonder where it is. Underground? In Michigan? I don't know. <laughs> you throw it in the dumpster, you just say, yay, and you run away. That's the biblical idea of repentance. You throw it in and you run away. You don't throw it in and two weeks later climb back in and grab it out again. That's our sin pattern though, isn't it? Throw it in and then uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go back. No, no, repentance is I don't want that in my life anymore. You can take that behavior and get it out of my life. You can take that thought and get it out of my life. You can take that relationship. I'm running away from it. That's what repentance looks like. You run away from the lies. That doesn't satisfy me. That, I'm not safe with that. I don't find meaning in that. I don't find purpose in that. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's no rest in that. I'm running away from it. That's a lie that's been lying to me. And worse, it's been lying to me and keeping me from the truth of where I do find peace, of where I do find joy, of where I do find delight and rest and hope and meaning in life. Run from the lies, and you run to the truth. These things have kept us from the Lord, and they've cut us off from the one who can truly give us these things. You run away from them, and you run to the truth. And when you come to Christ, and when you come to Christ, the text tells us that you find the forgiveness of your sins when you come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, you find the forgiveness, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when you come to Christ. But listen, so many of us miss this point. So many of us miss it even in our Christian lives. So many of us think that the Christian life is about me fixing myself. Oh, I came to Jesus on day one, but now I gotta fix myself. And you start to say crazy things, things that are based in lies in your head. You know, things like, how could I possibly go to God? How could I possibly talk to God with what I've done in my life? There's too much. There's too much sin. There's too much stain. You know what I'll do? I'll go back away from God and I'll fix it myself. I'll get some accountability in my life. I'll get some good friends. I'll start my prayer life up again. I'll start reading my Bible up again. Listen, 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 listen. The Christian life is not about cleaning myself. It's not about you and I removing the stain of sin from our lives. It's not about us fixing our bones, broken bones as they are. It's not about us becoming perfect and coming to God. It's about God having mercy upon us. It's about God saving me from me. That God would save my family from me. That God would save my kids from me. That God would save my church from me. That God would save my wife from me. That God would give me his spirit. That God would grant me forgiveness. That God, that God would do the work in my life. It's not about me. Will you say to me, wait, that's not for me. Craig, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how far I am. You don't know the stuff that I went through this week. The sins that came back, I'm in that dumpster pulling out everything. 
I mean, I heard a great message at Free Indeed. I heard a great message last weekend. I heard Pastor Robbie's sermon series made new. I made some changes, and now here I am in the dumpster again. This is not for me. I'm too far. I've done too much. There's no hope for me. Who's this for? Verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Who's this for? It's for you. It's for your kids. It's for those who are far away. If the Lord is calling you, it's for you. So has he called you? Has he been calling you recently? Maybe he's been calling you after a long season of disobedience. He's calling to you again. And you look down at your hands and you see the stains. What are those stains in your life this morning? Has God been calling you? What are the stains in your hidden life, in your thoughts, when no one's looking? What are the stains in your marriage, in your relationships, in your past? Has God given you the grace to see them today? Maybe even recently see them? Maybe through the Made New series, maybe through Free Indeed, maybe Daniel Henderson's message last weekend, God's been giving you the sight to see these things. What are those stains that you have on your hands? You know, we have a family of five, a terminal household, so, and the little ones, so we know a lot about stains. And, uh, and I didn't know this. When, like, my family, uh, when we got married, my wife and I, we, we, we settled on one soap. You like that too? You only buy one soap, one particular bar soap. That's what we go with. And we're Dove people. And I think we're Dove people because it's one quarter moisturizing cream, so it, <laughs> so it doesn't dry my skin like most soaps. Um, cucumber. Cucumber, okay? Because it smells good. And, and, uh, and it's great when you get the kids in and, and they've got stains all over them, and you take the bar soap, lather it up, and you wash them down, and the stains are gone. It's amazing. All the marker print. All, all that stuff that's on there that's indescribable, it's all off. Um, but there are some stains that you can't get off with a bar soap, right? So that's the stuff that you keep in your garage, that soap. That's the orange soap in the pump. You know, it smells citrusy. It's got the pumice in it, and it gets the grease off. And I don't have a lot on my hands, but sometimes you get the grease off, and then it leaves your hands kind of dry and manly. You feel manly. You come back in. And, my hands are clean, and I'm manlier. Uh, <laughs> what? takes the stains off that we're talking about this morning? What takes the stains off? Not a bar of soap. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The hymn writer goes, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this I see. For my pardon, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can my sin erase. Not of works, tis all of grace. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Listen, only Jesus has the soap to make you clean. All these efforts to try and make yourself bright even believer in Jesus Christ, all these efforts to make your standing right, all these errors and sins that you know you shouldn't be committing, but you've done. You don't make them right yourself. You flee to Jesus Christ. You know the truth and you run to the truth this morning and you say, only in you, Jesus. Only in you, Jesus. And what do you find? The forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins to you. 
You run to that truth. You repent. You turn away from that life, those behaviors, those thoughts, those sins. You throw them in the dumpster, and you run to Jesus. Brothers, sisters, what shall we do? We run to the truth that Jesus is the Lord and Christ, that he was crucified for me, and he offers me forgiveness of my sins, even my sins. But through him, and through him, he offers me the Spirit of God to give me victory over my daily battle and sin. Brothers and sisters, what shall we do? Run to the truth. I wonder who that's for this morning. God's maybe been gripping you past couple weeks, past couple months. You've been exposed in ways that you didn't think. And you've seen the sin with new eyes and God's grace upon you showing you what needs to change. Listen, what needs to change isn't accomplished through your hands. When you see that, when you got a javelin sticking out of your chest, it's not in your hands to fix it. You run to Jesus Christ. You run to the truth. Stop trying to fix it yourself. Run to Jesus. What shall we do? Run to the truth, but I wonder if you saw it. There was a second thing that Peter called him to do, a second uh, action. Once we get the truth, we're doing a physical response. He pick, let's pick it up again in verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Running to the truth is one thing, but once that's done, a response is called for. What's that response? It's this, run to the tank. Run to the tank. He calls them to run to Jesus and the truth of who Jesus is, to find the forgiveness in Christ, to find the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now once that's done, now we run to the tank. He calls them to be baptized. He calls them to go public. Listen, if you're, if you're coming to Jesus, you don't just slink in through the side door. He doesn't say, today, hey, today, if you believe, come to Jesus, but just come quietly. No, he says, come boldly. And you do it publicly, and you get baptized publicly to show what God has done in their lives. So... Under this, I wanted to talk for the next little bit about baptism. And I want to answer a couple questions that maybe we have that are circulating out there. Uh, question number one that we're going to answer here is, what does baptism mean? What is the meaning of baptism? Okay, what, what does it actually mean? Well, I want to show you first, it's, it's a submission to a command. A submission to a command. Now, what does that mean? What's that command? You say, well, how about this one here in verse 38? Repent and be baptized. Or how about the one that predates that in Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus is speaking to his disciples uh, some of his last words and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded to you. The, the, the clear mandate that a disciple is, is baptized. But notice this though, Peter's command to be baptized is not the second step of salvation. It's the first step of obedience. It's not the second step to get saved. It's the first step after you get saved. So, so think of it this way. You're laying in bed in the morning and you're thinking, okay, today uh, will be a day I will go to work. I will go to work today. And so you're laying in bed on your back and, and that's a decision you made. But there's an action that needs to happen after that. If you just will it, it's not going to happen. I will go to work today. And then you I'm still in my bedroom. Still. You got to get up and go. You make the decision, and then you respond with the action. How about getting a cup of coffee? I want that cup of coffee that that guy makes across town. It's a great cup of coffee. We're going for it. Uh, you can't go like this and get the coffee in your hand. You got to get up and go. 
You make the decision, and then you follow it with the action. You make the decision, and then you follow it in the action. What you see in the book of Acts, and in the whole New Testament, really, is that when a believer makes a decision to believe in Jesus Christ, then they make the action to be baptized. They believe by faith in Christ, and then the next step is baptism. Faith, baptism. Faith, baptism. Do you don't believe me? Let's look at a couple of these. Here's Acts. Acts chapter 8. This is is, uh, Philip, and he's in Samaria. And he's speaking to the Samaritans, and he says when they believe... Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Belief, then baptism. How about later in that chapter, Philip's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch, is, 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 he's explaining the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, well, there's water right there, let's get baptized. And then he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down, Philip and the eunuch, into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and, and he baptized them. He believed and he was baptized. How about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. And immediately after Paul hears the gospel, something like scales falls from his eyes. He regained his sight, and then he rose, and the next step is he was baptized. Belief, baptism. You picking it up? You picking it up? Acts chapter 10. How about Cornelius? Uh, uh, Cornelius, these are Gentile believers now. This is a big deal in the kingdom of God. Even Gentiles come in. They hear the gospel. The Spirit of God falls upon them. And Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Here's another one. Here's another one in Acts. This is Lydia in in Philippi. Here's the gospel from Paul uh, in the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized, right there. So she hears the gospel and then she gets baptized. How about the next verse? Next verse. Then he brought them out saying, Sirs, this is the the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and you and your whole household. If they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll get saved too. And they spoke the word of the Lord to them and all who were in his house. They get the gospel. Everybody gets the gospel. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. And his whole family who believes is baptized at once as well. Are you, you getting it? You want a couple more? You need a couple more. Here's another one. Okay, Acts 18. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Next verse, Acts 19, 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Belief, baptism. Belief, baptism. Not as a second step of salvation, but as a first step of obedience. If you have faith, you get baptized. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get baptized. You go public. You declare it. So what is baptism? Well, it's a submission to a command. But secondly, I want you to see this. It's a statement of identification. It's a statement of identification. Now, the word there, the Greek word for baptism means to literally plunge under the water. It was used in secular literature at the time to describe people who would dye fabrics. And they would take the fabric and plunge it under the water. And and they would come up, and that fabric would be the color of the water, in association with. You didn't dye fabric by just spritzing it with a water bottle or splashing the dye on it. You dropped it in, shook it in there, and pulled it out. It's a plunge thing. You you dunk it in. And that's, that's, I think, where the English term, take the plunge, comes from. It's an association with. Now, 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 in the summer months, maybe, maybe six months from now, it'll get pretty hot. We hope, uh, but it's not been a cold winter. We can't complain. But let's say it's really hot. You know what the best thing to do on a hot day? You got a pool in your backyard. You know what you do? You go to the dollar store 
and you get one of those little green bottles with the foam fans on the front. You put the AA battery in or the, the AAA battery in it, and then you sit there by your pool spraying yourself. Ah. No, that's not, that's not, what, that's not, what, that's not what you do. There's, there's a different Greek word for spritzing. The, the word that's used in the text is plunge. You, you want to be cool? You want to associate with coolness and cold refreshment? Dive in the pool. That's the sense behind baptism there. You dive in. You get plunged publicly. Just as Jesus died publicly for your sins, you stand and publicly declare his work for you in your life. And he willingly publicly associated with you, and he asks you to do the same. The kingdom of God is for those who are broken and needy, and they know it, and they declare it. He associated with you on that hilltop 2,000 years ago. He hung, he was rejected, he was mocked, he was spat upon, he was stripped, and he hung on a cross because of you, because of me. He did this for us. And you're telling me that you can't associate with him. Listen, hard truth time, but it's the truth, and we love you, so here's the truth. He hung on a cross, shamed unto death because of you. And you're telling me you can't get wet? It's a statement of identification. But it's also, thirdly, a sign of what Jesus has done. Uh, elsewhere in, in Romans chapter 6, Paul puts it really well. He says this in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That's a complicated passage. But what Paul is saying here in this moment is he's saying that your physical baptism represents the spiritual baptism in Jesus Christ. Your physical baptism, as you stand in the tank with the pastor who's about to plunge you under the water and then raise you up and we cheer, that's a symbol of what's happened to you spiritually when you came to Christ. When you came to Christ, Jesus Christ took hold of you. He called to you and you received by the forgiveness, by the repentance that was given to you. You received that forgiveness and Jesus Christ plunged you under the, under the water and associated you with his death and burial and washed away your sin and then raised you to the newness of life and the chorus of heaven cheers as you have received this eternal life. That's a picture. That's what baptism is. It's a picture of what Jesus has already done. Does anything mystical or magical happen in the tank? No. It's that sign, though, that something has happened beforehand, that you found that forgiveness. And have you ever noticed that baptism is always passive, meaning it's always done to you? You can't go in the tank and say, I'm a follower of Jesus and baptize yourself. That's not how the New Testament wants it. There needs to be someone standing there as a picture of what Christ has done for you. Look, loved ones, this is what Jesus has done for me. Just as, just as Pastor Robbie's going to take me and plunge me under the water, that's what Jesus did for me. He gave me forgiveness of my sins, and now I'm raised in the newness of life. A new creature given new life by Jesus Christ. That's what baptism depicts. So listen, what does it mean? Well, it's a submission to a command. It's a statement of identification, and it's a sign of what Jesus has done for you. But this brings us to the next, the next question. Who should get baptized? Who should get baptized? For that answer, look at verse 39. For the promise is for you 
and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Who's, who should get baptized? If the Lord is calling you, then you should get baptized. If the Lord has called your children, then they should get baptized. If the Lord has called you and you're far off, then you should get baptized. If you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if, if you have placed faith in him and trusted in Jesus, repented of your sins, turned to Christ, all that, then, then you get baptized. A believer gets baptized. Now listen, I, I recognize that there may be some here in the, in the church, even right now, that, that have come from different traditions. A tradition maybe that doesn't practice believer's baptism, but rather practices infant baptism. And I understand the reasons for that, but, 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 uh, but respectfully, as a church, we disagree with those reasons. And we disagree with those reasons because of what we see in Scripture, that, that, that believers in the New Testament are testifying to what God has done in their life. It's a testimony and, and, and a declaration of faith in Christ. And an infant cannot place faith in Christ and cannot declare anything except crying. And, 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 and so, so we, we, we baptize as believers in Jesus Christ. And, and we see the, New Test, uh, the Old Testament teaching that just as circumcision was a sign of the old covenant community of faith that you entered through birth, now baptism is a sign of the new covenant community of faith that you enter in by new birth. And you have to be born again to be a part of that and to testify to this and to be baptized. But when you are and when you get baptized... You're declaring you're part of the family of God. And when the family of God, you're standing there and saying, I'm a part of the family of God. I want to do what the family of God does. And that's why I'm going to get soaking wet for Jesus right now. Well, that's who should get baptized. That's what does baptism mean. Now, how about this last question? When, when should I get baptized? When? Well, the answer, first the question, have you received Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned away have you, have you run to the truth of Jesus Christ and, and you haven't been baptized? Well, the answer for you of when you should get baptized is, is, is now. Like now. Like now? No, 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 not, not, like, not like right now, but like as soon as possible. As soon as you can put your name down, as soon as you can call the office, as soon as you can connect, you need to get baptized. You need to declare this. Now, you got some hesitations. I know you got hesitations. One of those hesitations is, listen, listen, I got too much sin. I got too much sin in my life. If you knew I'm struggling in sin, I'm struggling, and, and I, I just, how could I, how could I stand in the tank and declare what Jesus has done for me, and I'm still struggling in this major area of my life? You, you don't know. Like, like it's, I can't do that. I feel like a hypocrite. Listen, listen, listen. Baptism is not the second step of salvation. It's the first step of obedience. So you may be here today and saying, listen, I, I'm finding it really hard. I, I'm struggling, and, and God's winning battles, but I'm struggling in being obedient in this particular area of my life. And I'm, I feel like I'm falling down and losing, and I'm falling down and I'm losing. Well, listen, listen, listen. What God's calling you to do is to be obedient in one area of your life. You say, okay, I can't overcome that sin, and I'm working through that, and God's working in my life, but I, but, but, but I, but I can step and be obedient in baptism. I may not be able to have victory over this, but, but I will take the first step to obey him in this. Listen, listen, God's not looking for perfection in your life. No, wait. He is looking for perfection in your life, but not from you. The perfection in your life 
in Jesus Christ is because of the righteous work of Jesus Christ and not because of you. So if you're sitting here today and saying, I could never get baptized, I got so much sin. Well, then I would say, well, neither could I. And neither could anyone in this room. The only reason you're getting baptized is you're standing, not standing there saying, hey, I got it all together. Look at me. I've won battle after battle after battle. I'm amazing. Baptism is not a capstone to an awesome life of obedience. Baptism is the first step, the baby step of a new believer to want to obey. Lord, I'll obey you in the small things. And then when I obey you in the small things, God, would you give me grace to obey you in the big things? You're standing in the tank not saying I'm awesome. You're standing in the tank saying, Jesus Christ has had mercy on me. Some of you know me. I'm a wreck. I'm still struggling, but I want to obey Christ. He loves me, and I'm clinging to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and I want to obey in this area of my life right now. Not in my righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not in me, but in him. You got too much sin? Yeah, so does everybody. I got a ton of sin but I have a great savior and I cling to him. And that's what you cling to in the baptism tank. You say, okay, well, okay. Well, that hesitation didn't work. How about this one? I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Those testimonies sound amazing. I don't know what to say. Listen, listen, as a, as a church, as pastors in the church, we would count it an honor, a privilege to sit down with you, have a cup of coffee with you, chat about your story, talk about your story, open up God's word together, pray together, and write out together a testimony that, you, that this is my life, and I'm, I'm, I want to say this, and I want to share this. That's our job, to care for you and shepherd you. So you don't know what to write? Great, come talk to us. Okay, well, that, that didn't work. Um, how about this one? I get too nervous. I get nervous, too. Every single time I stand up to speak, I get nervous. That's, that's, there's a lot of you here. I get it. I really get it. But here's the reality. Everyone gets nervous. And here's an even greater reality. Jesus promises us in John's gospel that when we stand and declare Jesus Christ, we do not do it alone. In fact, we get a helper, one called alongside us, the person of the Holy Spirit who will bring to mind the things of Christ and will give us the power to declare it. Just flip back one page to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Verse 8. This is Jesus's, some more of Jesus' final words to his disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right now, they don't feel anything close to powerful. They're huddled together at the end of the chapter. But when the Spirit of God comes upon them, how does the Spirit of God use Peter to speak this passage? It's not Peter's skill. He's a Galilean fisherman. It's the Spirit of God. And I'll tell you this, as one of the pastors who gets the privilege of seeing baptisms happening, you get to see a lot of people in the back fanning themselves with their testimonies. But they're not fanning themselves, they're shaking. And the nervousness is real, and I get that. But then standing in the tank and beginning to declare the work of Jesus Christ and see the thrill and the joy come upon them. That's the power of the Spirit of God. When you stand and declare Jesus, you don't do it alone. The Spirit of God works with you to do this. Peter declared in the power of the Spirit of God to these some 3,000 people on this day. He said, hey, listen, 
run to the truth and run to the tank. Now, what was their response? Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Now, verse 41. So those who received his word, that's believed in it, were baptized. Belief and baptism. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So the question, what do we do, is answered. Maybe, maybe recently God's been opening your heart and showing you some things that need to change. And maybe even as a believer in Jesus Christ, maybe you have been baptized and you're sitting there today, what do I do, what do I do? How do I change? Listen, a reminder again, the truth of God's word today for you, the gospel does not call you to get fixed on your own and then come to Jesus. The gospel promises you that only through the power of Jesus Christ can you be cleansed. And so whatever that stain is on your hand, it's nothing, it's nothing that the blood of Jesus can't wash away. So maybe for you today, that's your response of obedience. You're running to the truth, and you're going to obey in that way. But maybe, maybe you're sitting there today, and you're saying, I've, done, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, but I have not done the first step of obedience. And you're here this morning, and you're saying, I, I need to obey. It's time. God said it, God commanded it, and I'm tired of disobeying it. What I'm going to ask you to do in a moment is to respond. Um, and I think I'm constrained well within Scripture to ask for a response because that's what Peter does in this passage, calls them to respond, and so I'm going to call you to respond. Baptism is that. It's a response to the truth. You've responded to the truth of who Jesus Christ is, and then you make a physical display that you've responded in that way. Well, as you see, we don't have the tank set up today. What I'm going to do is ask for a different kind of response. If you're here today... And you know that this is something that you have been disobedient in too long. And you're saying, I, 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 want, I want to obey the Lord. I don't have my act all together. I'm still struggling with sins in my life, some big, some small, all of its sins, still struggling, but I want to obey in this area of life. And you're in that place, and you want to get baptized. I'm going to ask you, where you are right now, would you please stand? And church, as they stand, it's right for us to cheer. Cheer.